bitch, please. Oh, bitch, please, my ass. You want a sandwich? Dig that. Oh, hell yeah. She's a bad I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white world. If I wasn't a Christian man, I'd probably be kicking in your way. I'm a black man in a white world. 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 Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the JB's Low Tech Podcast. In these days and times of people claiming that our rights are being taken away from us more and more every day. Today's guest will talk about a horrific story of her life and how she fought for the rights of victims and herself. Here next on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Our summers are so short in Minnesota, it can be easy to forget about important safety measures. And when extreme heat is involved, safety is even more critical. Here are a few things to remember to keep you and your loved ones, including your pets, safe and comfortable. One, remember to not leave your pets and kids in your vehicle. Two, always stay hydrated in hot weather. Three, avoid exercise during the hottest times of the day. Four, stay in air conditioning as much as possible. Five, when traveling, stay sky aware. Check the forecast and prepare for unsafe driving conditions, thunderstorms, and tornadoes. High temperatures kill hundreds of people every year, but most heat-related deaths and illnesses are preventable. If we all slow down, take some time, check on our loved ones, and enjoy the beautiful season. I'm Mike Bryant from Bradshaw and Bryant. I hope you're never injured in a collision, but if you are, don't sign anything until you've talked to us. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Bradshaw and Bryant. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to JB's Low Tech Podcast. As I stated earlier, as we are, some believe, losing more and more rights, I have a guest today who's a author, an abuse victim, an educator, an advocate, and most of all, a survivor. And I'd like to introduce you all to today's guest, Professor Paulette J. Buchanan. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, it's been a couple of rough days for me personally, but nothing that's going to kill me. So, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we do tend to go through that, don't we? Yeah. Like, we, you never know when your fridge is going to go out or other things pop up. Yeah. So. But I'm like you, I'm surviving through it. But <laughs> your story... Uh, I haven't been able to read the book, but the ex, you know, just the things that I were able to uh, skim through is a very uh, horrific 
story in itself, but also a, a story of survival. And I want to uh, first thank you for coming on, but also say um, how wonderful it is to see you survive through all this. Yeah, and I really appreciate um, you know podcasters like yourself who um, are reaching out to people and then really trying to encourage people to say, first, you're not alone. This is happening to a lot of people. And um, the laws just are simply being enforced. And um, we basically are left on our own to try to get whatever justice we can. Um, the courts are broken. Um, there are a lot of good judges. There are a lot of not very good judges. So, um, you know, I really appreciate your time and effort in um, getting the information out, educating the public, and encouraging people. That's yeah. really important. Even though I'm not a, <laughs> not a lawyer or a law student, I did work at the U.S. Attorney's Office a couple of times in St. Louis in the summer. Um, mm. The law has always interested me. Mm. Uh, but your story, um, you were twice, uh, I guess the best way to describe it, you were twice abused, uh, once by family members and then secondly by the law itself. Um, yep. is, uh, am I get, uh, quoting that correctly? Yeah, you are. Um, and when people are coming from a background of familial abuse, um, again, there are written laws that make that kind of action illegal. And yet I think the courts are just so jaundiced. There's, they've just become, a lot of judges have become very apathetic. A lot of, it goes from the police officers to either the state's attorney or the district attorney, whichever state they have. Um, they have one or the other. And the judges, they just become very jaundiced. And it's not just, um, you know, abuse and stalking and harassment and death threats against adults. It's also when children are impacted that they just do not enforce the law. Well, before I, I get to the question of why that's happening, can you uh, give our listeners some background into, and as much as you want to, because, um, you know, I don't want you to give your book totally away, nor I don't know how um, painful this may be to go through what happened in your past, but talk about uh, when I talked about being abused by family, what uh, what was going on and what happened? Well, you know, it's interesting. In the whole, um, all the many decades, really, that my brother has been, the one brother, I have four older brothers, but the one has been the absolute worst, um, has been just obsessed with, um, consumed, really, with controlling my life, um, ruining my life. Um, none of my brothers have a very good employment record. Um, they all have mental health problems. They all have criminal records, mostly for violence against women. Um, and the ironic thing of it is, you know, my mother and my father, they didn't beat up on each other. Uh, there was no alcohol or drug use by either one of them. Um, people have asked me, you know, why is he doing this? What is the origin of him? And some people have even said, you know, what did you do to him to make him so mad at you? <laughs> it's like, and I respond, right. I was born. <laughs> I was born. That's That's what made him mad. I'm the only girl and a family of world of brothers. And there was, you know, at the time, there's a significant age gap when you're younger. Um, the youngest of my brothers, of my oldest brothers, he's about seven years apart from me. 
And the one brother who's been causing a lot of the problems for us for so many years is about eight years older than I am. And, you know, that's a big gap when you're a little kid. It's not so much when you get older, but it is a big gap yeah. when you're a little kid. And I think they always viewed me as the intruder. But, you know, I really started examining things. Um, I took care of my mom the last four years of her life. And we really had some heart-to-hearts about things because my brothers, her sons, were also doing a lot of damage to her, too. They just would not stay out of our lives. Um, a lot of police warnings. Um, I did have at one point in time um, an arrest warrant against the worst of my brothers. Um, he lived in another state. They weren't going to extradite him. It was for harassment. And um, my mom and I talked about a lot of things. And, you know, I'm not a trained psychologist or a psychiatrist, but there are certain things that are simply aberrant in children. And as an educator, I have looked at some of my students and I see some issues there that even though some of them may come from excellent families and their siblings are perfectly fine, there's something that's not quite right in the thinking process of some kids. And so really that there's that age old battle of nurture versus nature. And I think it's really a combination of both. There's genetics that go into why my brothers are the way they are, yet nonetheless, they have fully admitted that they know what they're doing is wrong. They have fully admitted they really enjoy harming people. They think it's funny. They think it's funny. And those are really the classic signs of a psychopath. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I have in my book and other people have written about it. Don't confuse a psychopath with a psychotic. A psychotic really does believe there are pink elephants in the room communicating to them. Whereas a psychopath, some of them can be extremely intelligent. They know how to size up people. They know how to manipulate people. They know the difference between right and wrong. A psychotic doesn't. They, they have a total break from reality, or at least some degree of break from reality. They really sometimes don't know what is right and wrong. But a psychopath does. And that's the origin of it. And I really, for many, many years, I kept thinking to myself, are they ever going to grow up? Um, but some of the abuse, I mean, it was just, um, a lot of it was mental, but some of it definitely was physical, um, beating up on each other, beating up on me, um, beating up on our parents. And, you know, it's just, and my, you know, it didn't have help that my father himself, his father was a psychopath. So he had a lot of issues. I mean, I think, and I write this about in my book, when I talk about the origins of all of this, that. I think both of my parents were better than their own parents, but there wasn't a lot of mental health and counseling and, you know, like um, parenting classes and things like that. I think my, my parents were truly overwhelmed with how to deal with the problem of my brothers. Um, and again, it started even before I was born. Um, my mother told me that some of her family members told her, well, you know, they're kind of acting like your crazy uncles, you know, um, and you, you got to, you know, keep a sh them on a short leash. So even as they were children, before I ever came into existence, there were family members who were recognizing, uh-oh, you know, they're the reminding them of the really bad family members. I have really good family members, you know, very productive people, had good reputations and everything on both sides of the family but also on both sides of the family. There were some very disturbing individuals, and 
genetics is a crap shot, shoot. So you never know what you're going to end up with. And unfortunately, my parents ended up with um, the really bad um, genetic factors going into that. And um, I, I had to deal with that. I mentioned this in my book that one of the best compliments I ever got from one of my teachers in high school who had had my brothers before me so many years before, um, one of the best compliments I got was like, you are nothing like your brothers. You know, I excelled in school. I got generally pretty good grades and I was more social. I, I did things. I've been volunteering since I was a teenager. Um, I'm now 60 years old. So, I mean, I've been doing a lot of volunteer work. I, I reach out, I'm an educator, but, and I've, I've held down my jobs. I've never gotten fired, you know? Um, so, I mean, these are things that, have set me apart from my brothers and it's just it, it is tragic and i as an educator i've seen that so many times in families where one or two of the children are just it, it's like wow did somebody switch babies in the hospital nursery because i mean <laughs> they're just they're out of control and it's very sad and um i've, I've oftentimes have wondered and i don't think there is any conclusive answer on this would it have helped if my parents if there was more intensive counseling available mm -hmm. would it have helped them and in the long run I, I keep reaching the conclusion i don't think it would have i i think because they have expressed so many times how much they enjoy inflicting pain on people that i don't think that that there would have been any help for them the only help would have been having a mental health system that recognizes that they are not capable of curbing their desire to hurt people and involuntarily committing them somewhere where they cannot carry through on their desire to hurt people. We don't have a mental health system. That's the problem. And we don't really have a very effective enforcement of the laws. So it's a bad combination. And then when you couple that with their ability to get guns, because nobody really does an extensive background check and the mental health records they have are private health records. No gun seller can access those. Even the police oftentimes cannot access, access those private health records. So there you have the double whammy of in, in basically incomplete background checks. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a mess. Well, um, and I really don't know why I want to ask this question, but where did you, uh, where did your family uh, grow up? We grew up in Connecticut. Um, my dad was in the Navy, and um, he got out of the Navy about a year before I was born. And he had, um, he was a prisoner of war during World War II in Japan, and that he had post-traumatic stress syndrome. They didn't call it that back then, but that's what he had. And, um, you know, a lot of that came out in terms of his, he had physical health problems from that, um, ulcers and things like that. And he was close enough to where they dropped the atomic bombs that he ended up getting cancer in his late 40s, early 50s. Um, and nobody else in the family had cancer at all. Um, so we grew up in Connecticut. My dad had retired from the Navy. And um, my brothers had, they had grown up in different parts of the country and stuff um, based on where my dad had been stationed at the time. Um, like Newport, Rhode Island, there's um, 
out in Illinois, uh, down in, in near the D.C. area and stuff like that. They lived in Maryland for a while. Um, so we grew up in Connecticut, and, um, you know, it was politically, I, it was traditionally New England, which tended to be a bit more political, conservative, con- politically conservative. Mm-hmm. And um, even, you know, the Democrats you know, and the Republicans are generally pretty conservative. My dad was a Democrat. My mom was a Republican. I mean, you know, they never got into fights about it or anything else like that. But, I mean, it was somewhat conservative on both sides. And um, a lot of Navy families, um, either active duty or retired, um, lived in the area and stuff. So, I mean, there was activities like a couple of my brothers were involved with the junior naval cadets. Um, You know, we did things as a family. Um, but there was always this thing where my brothers would just, and I never knew when, I just knew that they would, they would just go off. They'd either blow up and start beating up on me or blow up and start beating up on each other or giving my parents a really horrible time, giving their teachers a horrible time. Um, I've run across some of their old report cards, again, from before I was born, that talk about how they act like they're so much better than everybody else. And again, these are the early nascent signs of some kind of mental disorder that they are not getting along with their peers or that they have some friends, but then they turn on them. And I can definitely remember some of that happening where they would they would just treat sometimes their friends really badly. Um, so there was always that tension of what were they going to do next? Right. Um, you know. Uh, I'm I'm too from a military military family in a sense. You know, we we all grew up in St. Louis. I have eight siblings. Um, my parents were married sixty five uh, sixty five years plus, wow. or sixty somewhere in there before my yeah, dad died. Yeah, good for them. Wow. Um, but um, he can his his dad was a a Baptist minister, oh. and he kind of rebelled against religion. I was wondering if you ever thought that your brothers were uh, rebelling against authority because they were uh, military brats? You know, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I think, you know, obviously my dad was a very disciplinary type of person and everything, Um yeah, I mean, I think it was just anybody because with teachers and everything else, um, they were never really all that religious. Um, my mother was Protestant. My dad was Catholic. And they had, from what my mother told me, they had had some arguments about that um, at one point. And even honestly, when my dad came back from Morocco, he had sort of a, a sort of a PTSD breakdown over there in Morocco. I don't know all that happened, but he really didn't want to go to begin with, and something must have triggered him off. But he just kind of almost lost it himself, and he he filed for divorce against my mom. My mom was stateside during that time. Um, And I know religion was a part of it. Um, But at the same time, we didn't really go to church all that much. We did on, you know, the special occasions and stuff like that. And two, if there's like a funeral or whatever, and of course right. that's generally in a church or whatever. But they just didn't like authority. Anybody who was an authority over them, the teachers, my parents, obviously, right. anybody, police, 
none of that. They did not want anybody telling them what to do. And in that way, they were always grasping at power and control. Right. Like, no one was going to tell them what to do. And that was the dynamic they showed even with their friends, um, like with games or whatever. They would always rebel against whoever said, well, you know, who wants to do this game or whatever, or they would try to cheat. And they would get mad if they lost, even if they were playing legitimately. Um, I still remember I, I recounted in my book about how um, one of the brother who's caused the most problems for us, how he just freaked out on his friends. They were playing hoops, basketball hoops, and uh, he just couldn't stand it that they were doing better than, than he was doing. And he literally freaked out on them and started throwing the ball at them, cussing them out. I mean, the whole nine yards. But um, – it's interesting because the same brother has recognized, of course, religion is a powerful thing. Um, and he uses religion. He has his own online cult. He, he uses religion. He uses all the, the religious jargon as a lure, as a trap for people. He goes after the vulnerable people that are on the Internet. And unfortunately, there are a boatload of people who are overly trusting very dangerous thing. Um, and he goes after them. And again, it's a matter of power and control. And um, he uses a lot of lies about himself, which is typical what cult leaders do. They, they lie about their own biographies. Mm -hmm. And they lie about people that they know who they are, like their family members. And they'll work up this, oh, pathetic, like break out the violins, pathetic victim story. And that's what my brother has done. For example, he's claimed that I abused his children and that I, I'm a child abuser. I'm a convicted child abuser and I'm a domestic terrorist. All of these horrible things and I wanted fugitive. None of it is ever true. In fact, some of it's really true about him. He was actually investigated for child abuse until he fled the state of Connecticut where he was abusing his children. And we had no idea where he fled. The mother of the children had no idea where he fled. And he was under investigation for child abuse, and they just dropped it. They never did any type of pursuit as to trying to find out where he went or anything. And so he got away with that. He got away with child abuse. And at, then he turns around, and in 2000, he starts publishing all over the Internet that it was my mother and I who were child abusers. He's pure as the driven snow. He was protecting his children from us. And, it, I mean, I had to carry around in my jobs as an educator mm – -hmm a letter from the Connecticut Department of Children and Families saying they had no record of me ever having any complaints against me, ever having any kind of investigation. I'm not named in any of their records because I was so afraid that my my bosses, my coworkers, um, my students, their parents would find this horrible defamation on the Internet that I'm a child abuser, that I'm a wanted fugitive, that I'm a domestic terrorist. I mean, just ape crap, crazy lies. And I mean, that's a horrible thing to have spread globally <laughs> all over the Internet attached to your name. And um, I carried that letter with me in case anybody ever said, hey, I read this about you online. You know, what, what's going on with this? And I told my employers about it anyway. But, you know, you always have to wonder just how much worse is it going to get? He did try to get me fired from my job as an educator. That backfired on him. So he ended up, he's, he's an expert hacker. My one brother is the one who's been causing the most problems. 
and he um he hacked into the the email system and everybody was getting really obscene spam emails until they had to change the entire system around and made it more secure but he was making like vague references to like distorted versions of the family names and stuff like that so i knew it was him as soon as he didn't succeed in getting me fired this is the kind of stuff he's pulled um so yeah, I mean, you know, on, in addition to him, a lot of stalkers have learned how to hack. They got a lot of free time on their hands because they usually can't keep down a job and they usually use the internet for scamming people. Um, our lawyers found he had at some point nine email accounts with variations of the word kid sex in them. And, you know, can we conclusively say, oh yeah, he's dealing in child porn? No, because until we get a subpoena and we find out what the records are, we can't say that. But who puts up, who creates nine email accounts with variations of the word kid sex in it? Yeah, some, somebody who's not, um, I don't know, based in reality. <laughs> just Doing just devious sick. stuff. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, it, you know, just... And maybe I'm just grasping at something here, not to make your bro- your brothers look good or anything. I'm just trying to understand. Um, did they have much contact with the bad uncles? No, a lot okay. of them had died actually even before they were born. Or uh, like one of my mom's uncle, he died in prison for the criminally insane. He had raped children. Um, and so they had no contact with him. My mother had no contact with him. Um, even from the time she was a little girl, her parents kept her away from them because of how dangerous they were. Yeah. Um, so they knew some scant information. But, I mean, even if they were to be told, you do realize you're just like your uncle, right? They would deny it. They, honestly, because of the way they operate, you could show them a video of them saying or doing something and they would say, oh, no, that's not really me. Oh, no, I really didn't say that. You somehow manipulated the video. That's not really me. And it, there's no winning. Right. <laughs> you know, and they, they pulled this kind of stunt on my parents all the time. They would be caught quite literally red handed doing something and they would sit there and they would deny it. And then they would blame like I, I'm not even in the picture in terms of like I'm not even in the room. I wasn't in it. And they would blame me for it. It's like. And, and my parents are like, what? <laughs> I mean, how, how, how do you even reason with a child like that? And it's, it's that mind game that they like to play with people. Um, and again, you couple that with the religious issue that my brother is currently doing with his uh, fraudulent ministries, his fraudulent businesses, um, things like that. And um, you couple that with all the police reports and everything else, um, again, it's like there's always this line that he crosses again and again in terms of illegality, and yet we can't get the laws enforced. Um, other victims, uh, such as my brother's ex-wife and his children, it, you know, other the neighbors. He's been harassing and stalking his neighbors and their children. We do have a police report about that. I have that on my website, stopabusivelawsuits.com. And I mean, I have all the police reports. This is what the lawyers told us to do. It's like, this guy's a limited purpose public figure. You gotta, you gotta publish this. But the frustration is that, again, 
all we can do is put out the warning. And time and time again, the record shows, yep, there's a police report. Yep, he gets arrested. But you know what? He gets a suspended sentence. And our system is just so bloody broken. And it was made broken. It, you know, it doesn't just happen on its own. It's made broken. And people like my brother, all my brothers, really, they take advantage of a system. They know the system's broken. And they take advantage of that. That's what every stalker, that's what every criminal does. Well, um, to kind of bring this back to you, because it definitely sounds like, and you stated it earlier, is it nature or is it nurture? Mm. Uh, it kind of sounds like uh, there are some genetic things that are yeah. uh, not, not meaning to laugh, but genetic things that are going on in their life, how did you escape or how did you wind up being the sane one or just luck or? You know, it it is. It's a crapshoot. I mean, I've often wondered, what if I was, is it something in the male traits? Um, And yet I go back over the generations and it's like on my mother's side, she had like, it was like a great, great grandmother who was nuts. I mean, just couldn't function in life. And this is like way back in the 1800s. And on my dad's side, his grandmother, she never learned English. She came over from uh, Poland, Ukraine area, and um, never learned English, never communicated, basically abandoned her kids, and just didn't want to have anything to do with them, and never really got along with anybody. And then his father, of course, kind of taking, you know, taking those traits on and stuff, but even to the, like, worst degree. It seems to affect mostly the males in the family. Um, I mentioned this in my book that my, one of my dad's cousins, her son, has been diagnosed schizophrenic and alcoholic. And it seems to go together that the ones who have the most severe mental health problems who have been actually diagnosed with like schizophrenia also have an alcohol problem. And um, I don't know how I escaped it. Believe me, I've, I've like, <laughs> how did I, you know, if, if I were born male, would I have been just like them? Yeah, you know, I don't have children and um, I, I wasn't really able to, um, but I thought to myself, I don't think I really would have wanted to in case I pass that along. I mean, it's a hellish existence and it would just like put me through absolute grief, you know, to have a child that acted the same way my brothers did toward me as they did toward our parents. Um, It would just break my heart, you know, it broke my mother's heart. Um, I, I recount in the book about how she just was racked with sobs because she would say, you know, they were such adorable babies. And yet I gave birth to these monsters that they've turned out to do so much damage to so many people. You know, it goes beyond what they did to her. She was so concerned about what they did to their own children, um, what they've done to so many other people, mostly women. But, you know, it's men, too. Um, and uh, it's it is it's it's a grievous thing. Um, we watched my husband. And I watched this thing on um, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, mm-hmm. a few weeks back. And it was his younger brother who turned him in, actually more at the prompting of his wife. Um, But they recognized some of the style of writing and the words that he was using in these public manifestos that were published in the newspapers. 
And they recounted how when Ted Kaczynski's younger brother, when they were children, and again, Ted Kaczynski was, you know, there was a big age gap there. Um, I don't know, it was like maybe eight, ten years, something like that. And his younger brother at one point, when he was a child, asked their father, what is wrong with Ted? So, again, here's two males. You just don't know. You don't know who's going to maybe turn out this way. And you think to yourself, could there have been something that could have been done, counseling or some kind of restrictive environment thing that would have prevented them from going down this path? And I, I honestly have to keep coming around to, I don't think there is. And yet these people know what they're doing is wrong. It's a very tragic thing. Um, and as I said, as an educator, I've seen it in families where you get, you know, all the kids are fine except one. And they're just out to lunch. Or you get another family um, where most of the kids are really horrible people and you get one who's not. Right. And they're just like they're and you can see the struggle. And, and it's like, boy, I can relate to that. You know, as an educator, um, my coworkers sometimes, you know, be, at the beginning of the school year would say, well, you know, watch out for this one because their sibling is so-and-so. And it's like, no, I went through that as a child. And it was a real horrible thing to be instantaneously yeah. judged by my teachers because of the actions of my brothers. And I, I really, I made a, a, a conscious effort to prove I'm not like them. And as I said, you know, the best compliment I got from one of my high school teachers was, you're nothing like your brothers, because I wasn't. Um, you know, I, I really, my heart goes out to people who are in families like this, because, again, we don't have the services available. We don't have a, a good functioning mental health system, and we need one. There are some people who do, in fact, need to be involuntarily committed into what I believe should be private mental health facilities, much like nursing homes where the state says, look, you know, the state monitored, but you have to go into these, these facilities. You simply cannot function in society. You're making death threats. You're not functioning. You get fired from your jobs. You're making crazy statements. You're, you're harming people. And unfortunately, those people, they simply cannot function in society. And I think that's why we're having all these shootings. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we're also having people using cars you know, to ram people. If they can't get guns, well, they use their vehicles. Well, they use their bare hands. It's not the guns. It's not the cars. It's not the bare hands. It's the fact we have a, we really don't have a functioning mental health system, and we need one. It's so barbaric not to have a functioning mental health system, and that's, again, why we have all these people on the streets, everything else. I go through that in my book. I explain what happened to break down the mental health system? And it was people who had no business dictating to the legislators, basically, and to the courts to say, oh, we need to do away with this. We need to do away with the state mental hospitals because they're all horrible. Well, some of them really were. But we have horrible hospitals and we have horrible nursing homes now. Do you shut them all down, you know, and throw everybody out on the streets? No. You fix the problem. And they didn't want to fix the problem. They well, wanted to just throw these people out on the streets. Well, I find it interesting, the, this, de, uh, for lack of a better term, deregulation de, uh, of um, the mental health system happened mm -hmm. under President Reagan. 
And That's a misnomer, actually. It really it? started under President Kennedy. Yeah, a lot of people blame Reagan for it. Reagan was just following what the courts told him to do. Okay. Uh, but it started under President Kennedy, and it started as a good idea. Kennedy wanted to privatize. You know, you keep in mind, Kennedy had a, a mentally um, disabled sister. Yes. Um, and she had you know, been lobotomized, and it, was, it turned out to be a horrible disaster. And he wanted to create basically a private mental health system, state-monitored, but a private mental health system where anybody, not just the wealthy like a Kennedy, could access care, but it would be available for everyone. Well, that got whittled down and whittled down. Um, I have to say the ACLU stepped in there and they did devastation. I mean, these are people who are not psychiatrists. They're not psychologists. And yet they're dictating to the courts and they're dictating to the legislators, hey, you've got to shut these state hospitals down. And they didn't have any kind of system that would catch these people. They basically right. created what were called community health centers, and they didn't do anything. They had no safety net for the severely mentally disturbed. People who have schizophrenia, people who just cannot function in life. I mean, it would be literally like throwing Alzheimer patients out on the streets. That's how barbaric it was. So it started under Kennedy, and through the courts, state by state, it worked its way through, and everybody blames Ronald Reagan for it. Reagan was just following the dictates of the court that the ACLU had already put into place back in the 60s. And it just kept permeating and permeating. And finally, enough legislators were pressured, and it's both Democrat and Republican. So they both have an equal share in this. Right. There were some legislators who say, this is nuts. You can't throw these people out. They need something. Well, they, they bamboozled them with saying, oh, we're going to create these community health centers. They will monitor these people. And, and they will prevent them from harming themselves and harming other people. Well, that was a joke because then the laws were passed that said, basically, if you don't want to take your medication and you want to live under a railroad bridge, you can. You have the so-called right to do that. Um, very soon after, as an example, my husband's from Middletown, Connecticut. And very soon after they shut down the mental health hospital that was there, it was a state-run mental health hospital like most of them are. Mm -hmm. um, it was, they always used to have every year, they closed the main street down to car traffic. And it was all the shops and everything were open. It was a great big, wonderful day where people would have all kinds of sales and everything else. And all the, the people would just walk through the main street, this big, wide main street. And this guy took a knife he had been recently released from the state mental hospital in broad daylight. He killed a little girl standing there right next to her mother in broad daylight on that main street, on that event where they, they had, um, you know, all that, the, like an open market type of thing. And it was because he, the state had no business shutting down these facilities without providing other types of facilities. They did away with the commitment laws. And it's extremely difficult to get people committed into yes. permanent, long-term mental health treatment. And this is just the problem, is that they started then using nursing homes. Now, picture this, and I mentioned this in my book, and the statistics are out there. How many 26-year-old schizophrenics are put in the same room with an 86-year-old grandmother? 
and they kill them because they're schizophrenics Mm -hmm. or they're on, you know, serious drugs or a combination of both. Oftentimes um, schizophrenia goes hand in hand with either extreme alcoholism or some type of drug dependency, drug addiction. And this is what's happening. It's like, think about that. That just doesn't even make any sense to put somebody severely mentally disturbed in with an 86 year old great grandmother. It just doesn't make any sense. And yet, and it's showing these, unfortunately, these elderly citizens are being murdered in nursing homes by people who have severe mental health problems. We really need to have a compassionate mental health system, state by state by state. We need to be basically opening up private facilities like nursing homes, but they are for the terminally, severely mentally disturbed. I'm not talking with people who have like periodic bouts of depression, you know, or or they can function in society, but yeah, they have some issues, you know. I'm talking about severely mentally disturbed people who just cannot function in society. Either they're like psychopaths, like my brothers, or they're psychotic. They really do believe, you know, they are surrounded by all kinds of crazy things and they believe all kinds of nuts things that they just cannot distinguish between fact and reality and, or, you know, reality and unreality delusions. Um, we, it's just, it's, nobody wants to put out the money. And the lie was, as the ACLU would put it before the judges and before the legislators is that this is going to save a lot of money. Well, it hasn't, you know, um, we have to hire more police. Mm-hmm. We have to hire more judges to oversee these cases. Mm-hmm. And again, there's no safety net. There's no system that we have that's, that's really permanently removing. If somebody does go in for involuntary treatment, it's maybe seven or 10 days. That's not enough to treat anybody. That's insane. Right. Well, also more jailers, more jails and all of those yeah. things. But yep. was in... I just turned 60 myself, so <laughs> we, we share Congratulations. that. <laughs> Same to you. I'm still struggling with it a little bit, but um, um, just a number. I know. I can try to tell myself <laughs> that, but there's been a lot of changes <laughs> for yeah. some reason. Yeah. Um, was the system so horrific that it was... Uh, it was holding people who were just depressed. And yeah. Who, and so the system swung, the pendulum swung completely open. And this mm-hmm. is a mess that we deal with today. And I know that ACLU a, a is about advocacy and um, people's um, civil rights. Sometimes common sense got to come into play, and you know you gotta mm-hmm. you gotta know when to like say, okay, this is the line. Yeah. And to and blow that completely open, you know, mm-hmm. you, you see some. And when most people see, think about it, they see the person mumbling down the street, or the homeless person begging for money, or this, that, yeah. and the other. They don't think about how um, it can turn abusive, like in your case or uh, in many other people's cases or even deadly. And it's just, you know, when I hear this debate and one side says guns and the other side says uh, mental illness, 
I say, why can't it be a combination of both? You know. Yeah, we, we definitely need to have um, better um, background checks. Um, I, I'm all for the Second Amendment. I have to have a gun to protect myself against my brother who has an arsenal of guns. Um, I'm a responsible citizen and all of this. Um, and there are some states and there are some police departments. They will not issue guns to people that are acting crazy, that they know them. Right. But unfortunately, it's not universal. We do need to have it's a combination. Think about it. I mean, if you have somebody permanently committed into a mental health facility, they're cared for compassionately. They're not going to need guns. They're not going to be having to go out to get guns. There's not a capability there to get guns. And think about it, too. If you have somebody who's battling, like, for example, with PTSD, they come back and, you know, before they went into a bad situation, whether it's war or whether something happened to them, you know, they were in like a terrorist attack here in the States or something, or again, they were in an abusive relationship. They may have symptoms of PTSD. They may have suicidal thoughts. We do have a federal law that says psychiatrists, psychologists are responsible for reporting to the federal government the problem with a certain person having severe mental health problems and that they should not be getting guns, but right. nobody does it. So you have all of these failures in the system that could prevent certain people even now from getting guns. You know, we were just reading about these recent shootings in Illinois. Mm -hmm. The state police and the police department never kept adequate records from everything I'm reading. It doesn't sound like they kept adequate records. So this guy comes with his father to get a, a gun permit, and they give it to him after they already had police records, or they should have had police records. They had incidents where um, just sh prior to that, um, he had threatened to stab every, everybody to death and kill himself. Two incidents, and they had him in mental health treatment, obviously a very short time. But, <laughs> and then the police give him a permit to get guns. I mean, that's, that is insane. Mm -hmm. um, it, it just, there are so many failures within the system, which goes hand in hand with all the other laws they violate. It's the very people whose responsibility it is to enforce the law who are failing to enforce the law, who really are themselves breaking the law. And that's why we're having these things happen. And of course, you know, some people really go full blown political about the issue. The bottom line of it is we live in a dangerous world. And I have proven myself as a functioning person in society that I should be able to have a gun to protect myself from those people I can't get the laws enforced against who have an arsenal of, of weapons. And then I should be able to protect myself, you know, um, and they shouldn't have those arsenal of weapons. There are some people who should not have these these weapons. Um, and again, I'm a strong Second Amendment supporter but this is ridiculous there are some people who just shouldn't have, have these weapons they have severe mental health problems and we need to have the laws enforced about that and they're not why, uh, why aren't the laws being enforced why why do they not keep or even when they have the information do anything about it are they worried about being sued are they worried about uh, legal other legal uh, remedies happening against them or they just don't care? 
I think it's really a combination of all of that. I really do. I think we have such a breakdown of morality. Um, we are our brother's keeper. You know, we do have to look out for each other. Um, it doesn't just take a village. It takes a family. And a lot of people are coming from broken families, including those people who work in law enforcement, including those people who become lawyers or judges. Um, there's just such a breakdown of morality, of a sense of right and wrong and of commitment to community that we are here to take care of each other. I think apathy definitely reigns into it. I think a lot of people are just overwhelmed. And yes, you brought up a valid point. People are afraid of really a meritless lawsuit. You know, um, they don't want to deal with it. They just don't want to deal with reality. They figure, hey, you know, they're going to get a gun anyway, regardless, because people can get guns illegally. Um, I mean, that's that's the irony where they've banned guns like Chicago. <laughs> they have all these shootings. I mean, it's a war zone. And, and you know, here where we now live in Tennessee, I mean, um, you don't see that kind of thing happening on that grand scale. It's not to say it won't, but you don't see it happening on that grand scale. Um, they The police here do tend to, and it varies from town to town, but they do tend to not want to see people who are severely mentally ill get guns, and yet they do anyway. They either borrow them from somebody else yeah. or they get them illegally. Um, There's so many things that can be done to prevent this, and it's going to take really some strong-willed people to say, this has got to stop. We just have to stop this. this you know, if you could point to any number of political ideologies going to this, but really it boils down to people have to care enough to say, let's get at the root of this problem. We have a mental health problem. We don't have a mental health system to take care of this mental health problem. We're barbaric in that way. We need to stop being that way. And we need to have extensive background checks. Right. Um, there's no reason why a 19-year-old who has a family history of all kinds of violence should be able to get a gun. There is just no reason why that should happen. And it makes law-abiding people like myself, you know, look bad. And, and, of course, my husband and I are a little concerned that at some point we're like we, the, the federal government is going to crack down and say, you can't have guns. Well, then how do I protect myself from my brother who knows how to get guns illegally, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, I, bow and arrow? I mean, what do we do, <laughs> you know? Um, so it, it, it's so comprehensive, um, and we need to hit at each one of the origins of these problems. Um, you use the term weaponized um, court system. Can you mm. speak a little bit or tell me a little bit about uh, what what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, probably about 40, 50, 60 years ago, an, an earlier generation of judges would not have allowed people to file lawsuits without an attorney. It's called pro se. That's the Latin term for by oneself. Um, to file these lawsuits without an attorney, self-represented, where they were just completely meritless. Judges' responsibility, the really main prim primary responsibility, is to be court managers. Mm -hmm. And they're not doing that. I think a lot of it goes back to our law schools. Um, judges have the right, the responsibility, and the duty to manage the caseloads that come into the court system. And 
the whole concept of self-representation of pro se is based in English law. And it's theoretically, it's a great idea. You know, if you have Farmer Brown had his chicken stolen by Farmer Smith, he could go to, to the court, the judge and say, look, Farmer Smith stole my chicken. I want my chicken back. And he doesn't have to hire a lawyer. He can just go to a judge and say, I, you know, I want justice. I want my chicken back. It, in theory, it's great. But when you get judges who they get paid, whether they do a good job or not, they don't care. And they bring these incredibly insane, meritless cases. They file them in the court clerk's office for a few hundred dollars. You get served. You have to, you cannot ignore a lawsuit. Right. Or the person who sues you can get a default judgment, in which case your wages can be attached. Your bank account can be seized. I mean, it's a nightmare. So you do not want to ignore a lawsuit. And so, again, my brother has sued us nine times, three different states, state and federal court. Even after we got injunctions against him, he went to other states and sued us in those states. We were able to get, uh, again, full faith and credit based upon our U.S. Constitution, um, domestication of those judgments in, that we got in Tennessee and injunctions to prevent him from carrying through with the lawsuit. But we hired an attorney. Um, for most of those cases, there was one case we, we just wrote to the court to explain what was going on. It was out of jurisdiction, and it was dismissed. Um, but the other cases were a little more complex, and we needed to have attorneys. Um, so to the tune of about $200,000, we have spent on attorney fees proving our innocence over and over and over again. And if the judges had just done their job, this would not have happened. A previous generation of judges, and there are still judges who do this. I talked to a few here in Tennessee. Well, let me ask you this. With um, with all the lawsuits and other things you still have to deal with with your brothers, um, which is, I guess you would say, still is a form of abuse in a way, um, how do you manage to have a successful life? I mean, you're married, you, you're a published author, um, you're a professor. What within you gets you to get through all this and survive? Yeah, it's very, very difficult. Um, you know, whenever you go through a difficult period of time, you find out who your friends are and who they are not. That's true whether you have cancer or you go through any other bad spell in your life. And that's the same thing with when you have an aggressive, long-term stalking situation um, and harassment, death threats, the whole nine yards, because he also harassed our friends and he harassed our neighbors, he harassed our, our um, employers and our coworkers. Um, there are times when you literally think you're gonna lose your mind. You think to yourself, why is this happening? What can I do to prevent this? You know. And it is a very difficult thing. You you really have to have a good system of support. And you also have to find some good counselors. Um, we actually had a couple of counselors who said, I can't handle this. For one thing, I'm a former stalk victim myself, and this is dredging up a lot of triggers for me. I, I just can't deal with it. So we had to find some really good counselors who could walk us through the despair. You know, you're basically held prisoner. 
in one sense. Um, you're held prisoner to a, not only the stalker, but the system that he's using, weaponizing the court system, because you have to answer these things. Those, those court cases, the lawsuits bind you to your stalker. Um, and I talked with other women, mostly it's women. There are some men actually I've talked to who have also gone through the same thing with like an ex-partner. Um, and it is, it's a horrible situation where the courts are allowing, really empowering the abuser to continue the abuse. This is just another form of abuse. It causes a lot of financial distress. You have to answer the court in terms of the lawsuit claims that are totally lies and, and defamation. You have to answer them. And it's exhausting. Um, pray a lot. That's, that's one of the things I do. Um, really, really expressed a lot of like anger at God, kind of like a Lieutenant Dan moment, like in the movie Forrest Gump. Um, but you, you also realize it's like, you know what? We live in a broken world. I am not the only one going through this. And our system is broken. I'm going to fight this. I have been a fighter against my brothers from my earliest memories. And I'm going to continue fighting this. And, you know, I'm a fairly strong-minded person. But at the same time, I can remember those, like, fleeting millisecond thoughts of, I just wish I could die. I wish, you know, I, I've thought about those times of just, like, you know, going in the garage, turning the key on, and just letting the car run, and I die that way. And it's like, no. I am not going to give them that. That's what they want me to do. They want to destroy me and and destroy my faith. You know, the, the whole thing that my brother, one of the, his motivations for claiming he's a ministry leader and that Jesus speaks to him is he knows how much that is offensive to me. He knew how much that was offensive to our mother and to a lot of his other people, the other former friends, uh, other people that he's known, even like mere acquaintances that he started stalking them too. Not as aggressively as he stalked me, but still fairly aggressively. They call the police, they, they got very concerned about their safety. Um, and it, it's something where you really need to have a good base of support. And you have to really keep reminding yourself of the good things you have and being grateful for those good things. It could be good neighbors. It could be, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for my husband. I'm grateful for my friends who have stuck by me all these years. It could be a bird singing outside or a beautiful flower that I've grown in my garden. It can be whatever it is. You take those little moments and you say, at least this is good, right. you know? And, and I will, this cannot go on forever. It's going on for a long time, but it cannot go on forever. We will get these judgments, we will. And um, even in terms of financial recovery, because as I you know, was saying, it costs about, at this point, it's cost about $200,000. We have a judgment against them for like 247000 but collecting on the judgment, virtually impossible. We're not giving up. Right. But we've had um, some creative thinking about, oh, how can we compensate for this financial damage? When the market, the stock market was doing well, we did some research and we invested. And we got a nice amount of money out of that. We, we sold our stocks at just the right time. Um, of course, the market right now is not doing as well. So we're hanging on to what we have. And it's like, okay, you know, at a later point, it will probably, as you know, history shows, it will go up. Um, we're doing things like we finished our basement and we're renting it out. Um, 
things like that to try to recover from the financial damage. And again, we're exploring different options of how we might be able to go after him. Um, he has a lot of hidden sources of income. He travels a lot domestically and foreign overseas um, on his so-called mission trips, which um, again, the religious scam part is, is just really, really awful. Um, you know, I cover that in my one chapter of my book called Raping and Slaughtering Souls for Jesus, because there are, they're, they're soul rapists. Doesn't matter whether it's, you know, a Catholic priest or a rabbi or an imam or whatever. Religion is a snare and religion is a way that people can gain instantaneous trust. You know, think about it. Somebody calls and introduces themselves to you as pastor so-and-so. Most people, even after all the scandals that have gone on, most people will still give complete trust to this person. They may even, at a, if they're at a bad point in their life, they may actually even share intimate details and say, oh, I, I need some counsel with this, you know? And these people may not be qualified in the least. They may have like a mail order ordination, <laughs> which I think should right. be illegal, you know? Um, and like my brother, he calls himself Pastor Max, you know, and he makes the, his name Max. It's not his name. Um, you know, and anybody who, who does the search on my name will find out, you know, all these documentation that I have on my brother, which is what the lawyers told us to do. It's like you got a free speech right to defend your own name and reputation. And he's a limited purpose public figure. So you've got the right to out him. And that's what I encourage victims to do. Speak up. You've got a voice. You've been beaten down, but you got to get your voice and you got to speak up about this. Because what they did, even if you can't get the laws enforced, what they did is still wrong. And if these people are out there promoting themselves in a public way, like my one brother is, you have a right to out them by name. But yeah, you have a right to speak up. Even if your, your, your abuser, your stalker is not a public figure, you still have a right to tell your story. You know, maybe you don't, don't want to mention the name. And, and again, you should seek legal counsel to see how much you can say and how you can say it. But you have a right to speak up. And um, I really try to encourage people to do that. There are other people going through what you're going through because, again, our system is broken. Your book is called uh, Fighting for Justice. Does, um, does it uh, detail ways people can help themselves? Absolutely. I'm a very solution-minded person. And... Um, you know, it can take a long time and a lot of effort. We are working with our legislators, as I, I mentioned on both my websites and in my book, and it's a slow slog. We have made some progress, but it is a slow slog. Um, in 2018, we contacted our legislators and we found out that other victims of abusive lawsuits had contacted their legislators um, to get a bill proposed called the Abuse of Civil Action Bill. And that was signed into law, and we used that to go against my brother when he sued us here in Tennessee. And, um, I mean, it's a, it's a great law. Um, it could be better. We are still trying to get some better laws in the book, such as, again, an abusive litigant list. I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer. And it goes to our constitutional law, full faith and credit. You know, in the same state, other states have these abusive um, litigant lists where if a court has designated somebody to be an abusive litigant, that information is shared with all the other state courts. Only makes sense because a lot of abusers will go from one county court to another county's court 
suing, suing, suing this person and that person, sometimes the same person. Um, and, and so it only makes sense to have that law going. And other states like Florida, Texas, California, Nevada, they have abusive litigant lists. And those are, you know, red state, blue states, you know, Democrat, Republican. So this is something that really it's, it's, it's not even a political issue. It's just a good sense issue. We're trying to get that going. Um, other states have bond requirements where right after the person sues you and you get notified of that lawsuit and they're suing you without an attorney and sometimes really even with an attorney because there are some dirtbag attorneys out there who will file bad lawsuits too. But you can, in certain states, you can file with the court to say, really strongly suspect this is an abusive lawsuit and here's why, judge. You give them the bare bones explanation as to why it appears to be an abusive lawsuit. And you can request that the judge issue a bond requirement that the suing party has to pay. It's what I basically call the put up or shut up law, where if they don't pay that bond, which is supposed to cover any attorney fees in the likely event that they're going to lose their case and you know they have to pay the attorney fees out of the bond money. If they don't pay that bond money right up front, then their case is dismissed right there on the spot with prejudice, meaning they can't refile it again. Mm -hmm. And we need to have something like that. But really what we need to have are judges to care about the functioning of the court system, to say, you know what, bud? You're not going to do this. You're not going to weaponize the court. This is not why we exist. And I'm dismissing this lawsuit right here on the, on the spot. Um, and again, I talked to an, an attorney who um, actually is a judge, and he um, he said that there are judges, you know, in our state who do that. They've had problems with people coming in filing just like ape crap crazy lawsuits that just have no merit. They don't have an attorney clearly trying to harass somebody and drag them through litigation hell and force them to hire an attorney and cost them a lot of money and they the judges look at it even the court clerk doesn't even file it and they just dismiss it right there we've talked with court clerks in this state um in like nashville memphis um chattanooga knoxville and they have been asking the judges for a long time, would you please screen these lawsuits? Because oftentimes these abusive pro se litigants, self-represented litigants, they terrorize the court clerks. They scare them. Mm -hmm. As one court clerk told me, he said, you know, there's security in the courtrooms right there by the judge, there's security. If somebody acts crazy with us, we have to call out for security. We don't have security right at you know our, our side like the judges do. So they've been asking the court clerks, they have been asking the judges, would you please screen these lawsuits? Because, I mean, they don't have a law degree. You know, they can look at a lawsuit and say, this is not a valid lawsuit. There is no validity to this. This is clearly intended to harass somebody. This just needs to not even be given a docket number. So we really need some serious court reform. And, and we're finding that the, the Trial Lawyers Association, which again, one lawyer said that victims of pro se litigants are our bread and butter. Yet, we've had other attorneys say they never take a case defending somebody against a pro se litigant because they're afraid for their own safety. So you, you get this powerful special interest group of attorneys 
And it's very, very difficult to get laws changed dealing with the functioning of the courts. You get judges who don't want to change. They're getting paid whether they do a good job or not. You know, so um, any good law, if you look at the history of good laws that were passed, takes a long time. You look at um, we have um, the raising of the age of marriageability laws that have been passed in various states. Again, bipartisan effort, uh, Democrat, Republican. And it's because, for example, you'd have a 14-year-old girl who's being raped by her 26-year-old you know, neighbor, and the neighbor basically pays off the parent of this 14-year-old girl with a keg of beer in order to get the consent to marry her. Hmm. And it's not a real marriage. It's nothing more than just a continuous rape job. Right. And, and this has happened. And, and so... A lot of states have now raised the age of marriageability, and in some cases, they've actually said, like, even if it's like a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, and they're marrying somebody who's 28, um, or or just you know 21, they will call them to the court, and the judge will examine: Are you entering into this marriage of your own free will? Have you been pressured in any way to enter into this marriage? Cults oftentimes do arrange marriages. And that was one of the other reasons why some legislators say we've got to raise the age of marriageability because you have these cults that are marrying off these 14-year-old girls to 36-year-old men, you know, and it's, it's got to stop. So those took a long time to get passed. Uh, the other bills that got passed into law, which also took a very long time, are it's really as a result of all the sex abuse cases um, in both the church and like things, organizations like the Boy Scouts, is um, extending the statute of limitations on child sexual abuse. No child usually goes forward and goes to the police and say, yes, I've been sexually assaulted by my Boy Scout leader or by my pastor or by my teacher or whatever. Um, it usually starts coming out more in like their late 20s, into the 30s, even sometimes into their 40s. Mm-hmm. And so the courts are recognizing that reality. And in many states, they have passed laws extending the statute of limitations out like 20 years from when the event happened. It's Some of these laws are not perfect, but they're a big start in the right direction. But they take years. And right. so our efforts, and I encourage other victims Talk to your legislators. If you've been a victim of abusive lawsuits, talk to your legislators. Check out what your state's laws are. Maybe you're more protected than you realized. Um, but, but talk to your legislators and try to explain to them what you're doing. That's the best you can do. We do elect our legislators. So, I mean, if they're not doing a good job, get the word around. Say, you know what? They don't care. They don't care. So let's you know see if we can find somebody else to run. And, um, even like candidates, um, you can talk, talk to different candidates to say, here's my situation. If I vote for you, what will you do for me? You know, I think so many people are so they're not really involved in the political situation. And again, we've had both Democrat and Republican representatives, state representatives help us and even um, federal representatives, Republican, Democrat help us in trying to get this nightmare to stop for us. So you really have to, if you're of one particular political party, you gotta reach across those those divides there and, and try to work with your legislator. It's a human issue, you know, it's not really a political issue at that point. Your life is being affected by something that should not be happening. So I encourage other victims to speak up. You've got a voice, 
don't let them take your voice and um, work with your legislators if you can, um, but find a support system. And, you know, and it's things like do hobbies, do, you know, take an art class, do something, you know, develop a hobby or go back to a hobby that you once had, um, you know, planting flowers, whatever it is, or doing something creative, you know, getting involved maybe on a volunteer basis with something where, you know, they're helping out like kids during the summer program, feeding them lunch, you know, anything that will get you out of yourself, out of your situation of constantly thinking about it. And it's amazing in my own volunteer experience um, and just interacting with people that I find out how many other people have been affected by this. It really is a big problem that somebody has some degree of abuse or like a history of being sued over and over again by somebody. And um, it, it really is more of a problem than most people realize. Well, I want to thank you for being uh, so Fort Worth and honest and open about your situation. Uh, maybe it'll help someone who's going through, uh, you know, abuse, uh, abuse on, you know, in their own life. As you stated, it's not a political um, thing. It's a human thing. Yeah. Nobody should be harassed and bullied and whatever term you want to use. Go through that daily, constantly, and especially in the hands of family members and, and oh, yeah. people you trust. So um, I want to congratulate you for s surviving and also uh, thank you for uh, writing this book, uh, Fighting for Justice. And is, are, is there a way for somebody to contact you if they want to uh, talk to you more about this? Oh, absolutely. Um, on my Stop Abuse of Lawsuits website, especially, um, people, there's a contact form that people can fill out and they can email me. And, uh, and then, of course, on my book website, fightingforjusticebook.com, um, they can order the book that way. And that, my websites have links to each other. So, you know, they can check out the whole range of everything. But, yeah, I wrote my book to try to help other people. I, you know, I wish I never had to write it. I, you know, I tend to be a more private person and just want to just live my life. But this cascaded into my life, and I'm doing everything I can to make it redemptive, you know, and, and help other people. And, again, I really appreciate people like you doing this as a service to other people to say, hey, you know, this this is something that can help other people, so let's get the information out there. It's, um, like I stated, abuse is it's part of the human psyche, but you know, we we can do better. And we need to do better. So, again, mm. I, I want to thank um, Professor Paulette J. Buchanan for her time and her efforts and wish her well in her continued fight against, you know, her abusers. And at some point you're going to win. You know. Yeah, I mean, I, I always tell people, like, there's more to life than just this life because I do believe there's an afterlife. And, and right. yeah, I think, you know, you know we, we have to aim for the eternal, really. We, we don't know what kind of hell we're going to go through down on this earth, but we have to aim for the eternal, you know. And again, I'm encouraged by other victims, like um, really bad district attorneys, like the guy out there, the Gascon out there in L.A. People are saying enough. And it, it's, it's crossing party lines. This is a human issue. People are saying enough. 
we're not going to put up with this. You know, you've got to enforce the law and, you know, the recall efforts and everything else. I'm glad California has a recall um, option out there for people to pursue. I wish other states had that as well. Um, you know, we, we hire when we vote for our, our legislators and for other any other official, we hire them. Mm-hmm. And if they don't do their job, they should be fired. <laughs> Simple right. as that. You yeah. know, so I really appreciate your work in this and in, in trying to get information out to people to encourage them and strengthen them. Uh, yeah, that's important. Well, you're, uh, you're more than welcome. Uh, again, Professor Paulette J. Buchanan, Fighting for Justice is the book. And if you're going through something, maybe you want to reach out to her or reach out to other advocacy groups that can help uh don't suffer alone that's the worst thing you can do is to suffer alone Mm, absolutely all right yeah all right well thank you so very much our summers are so short in minnesota it can be easy to forget about important safety measures and when extreme heat is involved safety is even more critical here are a few things to remember to keep you and your loved ones including your pets safe and comfortable One, remember to not leave your pets and kids in your vehicle. Two, always stay hydrated in hot weather. Three, avoid exercise during the hottest times of the day. Four, stay in air conditioning as much as possible. Five, when traveling, stay sky aware. Check the forecast, prepare for unsafe driving conditions, thunderstorms, and tornadoes. High temperatures kill hundreds of people every year, but most heat-related deaths and illnesses are preventable. If we all slow down, take some time, check on our loved ones, and enjoy the beautiful season. I'm Mike Bryant from Bradshaw and Bryant. I hope you're never injured in a collision, but if you are, don't sign anything until you've talked to us. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Bradshaw and Bryant. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to JB's Low Tech Podcast. Well, I want to put a bow on this show. I want to thank our today's guest, Professor Jay Buchanan. Fight, the book is called Fighting for Justice. What an unbelievable story. Uh, all the stuff she has gone through and survived through at the hands of her own family members. Maybe I'll take another look at things when somebody get, makes me angry. And be thankful that they're not as uh, nutty as her relatives are. Well, as we wrap this up, remember I can be found on Podbean. I can be found on Apple Podcasts. I can be found on Overcast.com and other places that play podcasts. Tell a friend and let them know and have them try my show. And remember, come back and listen to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. J B is my name and fing up motherfuckers is my game. Fight on Negro, Black, African American, Black, Black, Black. Django J B. Damn.
Dolomite. Great God in heaven, you know We are great Negro sex machine. <laughs>